Hello and welcome to this Art Dirt podcast. I am Brandon Zeck. I am Christina Reese. And today we're talking about the best art we saw of the 2010s. So this is kind of our decade wrap-up recap. Um, mm-hmm. We very recently published the best art of uh, 2019 mm-hmm. from us and from our contributors. And we were we were thinking about this and we saw all of the best of lists that were happening with all of the other publications and everyone was counting down their best artworks. And we're talking about national and international publications. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were thinking about that and I was like, we, we have to do some sort of best of list because we've been very active in Texas over the past decade. Oh, certainly. Both of us. Yes. So this list, um, we're going to briefly talk about some of the favorite shows that we saw nationally, but we're not really going to try to compete with the other publications that are, you know, including all of these biennials and Istanbul and Documenta and all of these different things. We're really going to focus this on the best shows that we saw or the... Maybe, I don't know if best is even the right word. It could be the shows that left the most impact on us, which... In Texas. Yes, which you could classify that as best, or it could be a completely different thing. Yeah, absolutely. The ones that affected us the most. I think that's a good way to put it, because that's kind of what we're looking for when we're looking at art anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll kick it off with uh, two shows that I saw in New York uh, about two years apart from one another. Yeah, I mean, we can just go ahead and do some, it's almost like honorable mentions at the top of the podcast, but I mean, a few things that we saw outside of Texas that really impacted us, uh, we got around a little bit, but then we're going to go into the Texas thing. Go ahead. So, um... Two shows. One was a show by uh, Hito Sterl, who has had a fair amount of actually uh, a fair amount of Texas play uh, in the past decade. But she had a show at Artists Space, um, and it was an exhibition. It was at two of Artists Space locations. Um, their location kind of right by the Drawing Center where they used to be. They actually, I believe, just moved to Tribeca in New York. Um, but this was an exhibition of uh, works from 2004 onwards, so between 2004 and 2015. Um, And it included a lot of video works. Her video works are largely installation-based also, so you have to kind of watch them in the environment that she creates in order to get the full effect. I wrote about this show actually for Glass Tire at the very end of 2015, but it... It, it just left a really big impact on me. It was the kind of work that at the time I wasn't really seeing that much of in Texas. It deals a lot with the internet. It deals a lot with technology and kind of how to move through the world that is dominated by all of these things. And her work is just so smart. Her work and her writing. Sure, sure. My number two of that was a show at Lurig Augustine uh, in New York. It was a show of works by Steve Wolf who uh, he, he died in the 20, 2010s, I believe rather recently, actually. Uh, this show was kind of in memory of him. Uh, he died in 2016. But his work, he, he makes these uh, meticulously crafted either sculptures or paintings or drawings or whatever you want to call them. A lot of them are kind of mixed media, but they are replications of objects, many of them book covers or like little paperback cheap penny books themselves. This is really your thing. It, it really is. Um, there's actually a show. So this was a show, of course, uh, it was after he died. So it was kind of a, a, a big mix of his work. Houston audiences could be familiar. He does have a number of pieces 
at least I think two or three in the Menil collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I first saw his work. And then early in the 2010s, I don't have the date in front of me, maybe in 2010, the Menil did a show of his works, I believe works on paper. And I, I feel like if I had seen that show, it would have definitely been on my list. But either way, this show by Steve Wolf, it was in uh, 2017 at Lurig Augustine during the uh, Armory right. Week. Uh, but those are kind of my two outside of Texas exhibitions that really left an impact. Um, I probably won't go into as much detail about the shows I saw outside of Texas that meant a lot to me or that I even got on a plane and flew to see specifically, but I'll name a few. Um, I did see The Marvelous Sugar Baby in Brooklyn, uh, Carol Walker's piece, which we've talked about recently on a podcast. I saw the Polka retrospective at MoMA, as well as the Picabia. You saw that show. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting shows. I mean, things that kind of change you. Uh, I did fly up to see the Burden retrospective at New Museum, and I also flew up to see the Pipilotti Wrist um, survey at New Museum. I saw Mike Kelly's survey at um, PS1. The Carrie James Marshall show at Matt Breuer was incredible. Certainly one of the best painting shows I've ever seen in my life. Um, getting to see Bruce Connors Crossroads uh, at the Whitney in 2016, late 2016, was really meaningful for me. I was oh, and I saw a Rembrandt show at the National Gallery in London in 2014. It was super crowded, but my God, it was so incredible. I, you know, I think that we've probably missed a lot more than we've seen in terms of national and international. I think we're lucky to be able to go see this stuff. But, you know, these are the kind of shows that I walk away from and I continue to think about. And a lot of the stuff that we're about to talk about in terms of Texas, if it impacted me greatly, I probably wrote about it. And we're going to link all of everything that's related to everything we're talking about at the bottom uh, of this post on the Glass Tire website. So if you're listening to this through a podcast app or anything, uh, go to the Glass Tire website. There will be a big comprehensive list of all of these reviews and everything associated with what we're talking about. Sure. Well, let's get into let's get into our Texas stuff. We we spent quite a bit of time on our list, but we found out that there were a few overlaps, which are nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we could start with those. Were there maybe three? Yeah, we had three overlaps. So we uh, intensively dug in. I do have to say mostly into museum back catalogs, just to remind ourselves. Of course, we each had a couple different shows or instances or things that stuck out to us immediately, but we intensively dug and researched this to jog our memories. Yes, we did. Uh, individually of one another. Yes, yes. And, and we were living in different cities uh, far apart from each other in Texas, so we did manage to catch different shows. So uh, the first real overlap uh, that we had was a show at the Eamon Carter Museum of American Art in Fort Worth in 2017, uh, a show of works, a really comprehensive show of works by Valton Tyler. And he died shortly after this show came down, actually. He was a a self-taught artist living, I think, in Garland, Texas, a suburb of Dallas. I mean, what a weird discovery. A lot of these shows that we're talking about I think felt like discoveries for us. I think that's one of the reasons they impacted us is they were unexpected. We walked into a room not knowing what we were going to see. I'd agree with that. And um, but there's you know when an artist hits that sweet spot that there's there's something 
recognizable in the work. You understand that the artist has found, has tapped into some angle or element of humanity that we were maybe looking for or was filling a void in our own understanding of how civilization works. And, I, you know, Walton Tyler is a good example of that. This is a man whose brain worked slightly differently from the norm and his uh, paintings and drawings and um, prints, prints, beautiful prints, really, really uh, illustrated that. It was this incredibly moving show. I walked in feeling just kind of super neutral and ended up just like crying a lot during the show. When, when that happens to me, I know I have to sit up and pay attention. Um, yeah, and because he was local and really under... He was under-recognized. Absolutely really under-recognized. You know, Valley House Gallery up in Dallas, they are the ones who had been sort of like the keepers of his flame and uh, his estate and everything else, and they've been very, very good custodians of that. But what a great show for the Eamon Carter to put together. That is what I would like to think that our big museums on the ground in Texas can do for local and regional and Texas artists. Uh, every once in a while, just trot out a show that completely blows the critics away. Or... The art lovers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so our so a, as you can see, also listener, we're not going to be talking for twenty minutes about a single pick, and uh, oh. part of that is because we wanted to keep this moving a little bit for you and for ourselves, and also, as we mentioned earlier, we have spilled a lot of ink over a number of these picks, which is why to look at the post for these. Um, but our second pick you and I, Christina, actually did a conversation about, so I can't imagine this is going to be too long of a conversation about it, but it was the exhibition Nina Kachadorian Curiouser uh, at the Blanton Museum yeah. of Art. What a great show, my God. And it's not that we, we hadn't heard of her or seen any of her work before, but seeing that much of her work in one space was so beautifully comprehensive. I mean, you really got a sense of who this person is and what she's making and why. Very entertaining. Not something that that makes me cry. Although I have to say, the under pressure video is pretty. It it wow. brought me close, yeah. which is not not a lot of art can do. But cle being clever and having a sense of humor, but still having just this incredible sense of the full complexity of humanity is a real trick, and she's awfully good at it. And Veronica Roberts did a really nice uh, job of putting the show together, and I, I am. I have to believe that Nina was a part of it also. But the thing about Nina Kachadorian's work is it feels, when you look at it from the outside, it feels so segmented. And that's kind of how the show was, mm -hmm. honestly. Her work, there's there's a an ethos tying it all together, but aesthetically and really conceptually in one way, it's just all very disparate from from itself. Yeah, she has really discreet bodies of work. That's right. She has not let herself get stuck. Um, and I mean, I realize some artists kind of, you know, bang the same drum their entire careers and it's worth it. It works. I would say Richard Serra is on that list. I'll come, I'll circle back around to him later. But yeah, Nina really, like I know her, she is not afraid to pivot. <laughs> Yeah, and this show, it I feel like the show like that, or of an artist who makes work like that, could have very easily felt kind of stuffed together and crammed into a theme. And or this show, incoherent. Yeah, exactly. And this show didn't. 
um, and it just worked. Yeah, the mark of a good artist is there's a coherence in the entire kind of personality of the artist that comes through the work. I mean, Mike Kelly's retrospective at PS1 is a good example of that. But um, all right, so what is our third? So our the final pick that we had that overlapped was Dali, Poetics of the Small. Oh, wow. Talk 19... about taking us by surprise. Uh-huh. 1929 to 1936. This was at the Meadows Museum at SMU in Dallas. And it opened in 2018, and it closed in January of 2019. It actually had an extended run. I think it was so popular. I walked into this show, frankly, kind of with no expectations. Same here. And these tiny, tiny little paintings, I, I can't emphasize how small they actually are. I know. I mean, they're like, some of them were five by seven. They're, they're exceedingly small, yes. but they were breathtakingly amazingly done. Yeah, I mean, and for those of us who even like grew up in the 70s and 80s and this whole idea of Dolly is just being this kind of outsized personality who did all this surrealist stuff and we see it everywhere and it's been turned into like mouse pads and posters and, um, you know, um, carry-all bags, you know, these these images have become illustration for us. But then you go into this show and you see these paintings and you're like, oh my gosh, he was a hell of a painter he really was and these were mostly early artworks i want to say yeah it was only the the crazy thing about the show also is the show was comfortably crammed oh god it was a great looking show wasn't it the thing is it was I, i say that and that's not really true it was very well installed but because these little works had so much of a presence, yes, that's they exactly had to right. be installed far apart from one another, but it still felt like a normal exhibition in that regard. That's it's really right. hard to describe. That's right. Some rooms only had like four or five paintings and then these tiny paintings, and yet, you know, every one of them deserved a lot of time, which is um, an interesting thing. And I, I, I can't believe how, <laughs> how much you just want to dive into these tiny portals and just be in these spaces that he painted um i guess you know he became an outsized personality in his life and he really capitalized on his own image but we sort of lost the fact that he actually um had some incredible chops but this reminded us of that or for me it kind of it's almost like it taught it to me for the first time yeah me too Uh, and the fact that they were only done over seven-ish years mm-hmm. is amazing also. All right, so those are our three overlaps, which uh, I'm super pleased about. But now let's go back and forth. Let's take some turns. We each have five picks, I think, or maybe we're going to cheat a little bit. And we'll name some honorable mentions at the end because there were a lot of shows in Texas that we saw a lot of good work. But do you want to kick off this next section? Sure. I have uh, – it- kind of doesn't matter because we'll be trading back and forth. I kind of have mine more or less in chronological order. Mm. And, you know, before we start in also, it was really interesting that many of my five picks actually happened before I started working at Glass Tire, which I didn't quite expect. And I was frankly, maybe a little worried about. I didn't want to be the end of year list where, or the end of decade list where everything comes out of 2018 and 2019, because I feel like that's kind of the tendency that the things that happened most recently are the things that are the most memorable. But I feel like kind of for each of us, Christina, it really does span and it was just things that were memorable, period, for us, which was really nice. Right, right, right. So with that in mind, my first pick is Radical Presence, Black Performance in Contemporary Art. This was an exhibition put together by Valerie Kessel Oliver, longtime uh, Contemporary Arts Museum curator. Houston. Mm Mm-hmm. 
so this was at the CAM, the Contemporary Arts Museum, Houston, uh, November of 2012 to 2013, February. And kind of in line with the idea of exhibitions that really stuck with me being shows that really taught me something. I love performance art, and I was much less educated, as a lot of people were, I believe, before they saw this show, mm-hmm. about the history of black artists doing performance art. Of course, there's Pope L. and um, Terry Adkins and Saginda Ngudi and, you know, all of these people who have formed this basis, Benjamin Patterson, all of the Fluxus artists, too. In uh, this exhibition combined those artists with younger artists like Tamika Norris and Jamal Cyrus, uh, Clifford Owens, Adam Pendleton, Adrian Piper, well, you know, who isn't younger, but as it goes. Um, it had Jacoby Satterwhite. Uh, it had Theaster Gates. The, the, and the best part of this show is all of the exterior or extraneous programming along with it. It had actual performances by all of these artists. You can't have a good performance art show and just have a bunch of documentation and no activation or no actual performances. Even if you know only have maybe a third of the artists doing performances in the show, it still kind of doesn't fulfill it. It doesn't fill it out enough. Mm-hmm. And this show, God bless Valerie, she put it together and had all of these artists do performances in the space. So it was an exhibition that kept me coming back and each one was really just a joy to see. The roster of this list is one for the ages and it toured to the Walker Art Center and it toured to the Studio Museum in Harlem. And this is a show that I continuously think about and go back to and it was a pleasure to see it in Houston. And I think Houston was really rewarded from seeing it. Good. I wish I had seen it. I didn't see any of it. I heard a lot about it. I heard about it from various people. And um, I'm going to go into mine. I guess I'll do chronological as well. (laughs) My my five is sort of, it was going to be a three-way pick, and I feel like I'm pivoting right now at the last minute. There was a show, a set of shows at the DMA that Gabe Ritter put together when he was there. It was Concentration's 59 Mirror Stage visualizing the self after the internet. Um, John Raffin was in it. Ed Atkins was in it. Um, Ryan Treecarton was in it. He just Gerald was in it. Damn, what a lineup. That was an incredible, incredible set of shows that were put together for Concentrations 59. I saw an Ed Atkins uh, video out at Ballroom Marfa right around the same time, and I've become... Uh, hugely into his work uh, since then. But I was going to name, I'm just going to go off script here. I was going to name Between Action and the Unknown at the DMA, which was the art of Kazuo uh, Shiraga and Sadamasa Montenegro, which I wrote about. That was my real introduction to Gutai. That was also in 2015, along with Mirror Stage. And also, just another shout-out to Gabe Ritter while he was at the DMA. He put together, or had brought in a, a wonderful retrospective of Cindy Sherman's work. I mean, talk about just blown away. It doesn't take much of Cindy Sherman to just make you feel like you're in another, <laughs> you're in a rarefied world, but... Um, Again, I and I'd seen Cindy Sherman's work at the DMA. God, I think I was a teenager when they did a show of hers. But well, she's one of those artists where everyone has seen her work around. But once you actually get a show of it together, it's something else. Right, right, right. So I'm sorry I cheated on my fifth one, but those are the three DMA shows of the last decade that just really stood out to me. And since that was my hometown, and that's where I live, and that's my deal. 
um, I'm happy to make that my number five, those those three things together. And thank you, Gabe Ritter, for bringing some good stuff in. And uh, the Gutai stuff, by the way, the jumping point off of that is is to, is Rachowski's warehouse. And Howard Rachowski, Howard and Cindy Rachowski uh, have a lot of Gutai work, and it's really an excellent holding of that whole uh, era of Japanese art. And um, again, this show was my, uh, of these two painters, was my introduction to that work. So uh, my next pick was in 2014 at the Menil Collection. It was a show put together by Michelle White, uh, a show of drawings by Lee Bontecue. This was the first uh, retrospective of her drawings. One of the things that kind of stuck out to me with this show, if I'm not misremembering, is that they knocked out some walls for this exhibition that previously had been there. So you could kind of go through the Surrealist galleries and end up in this exhibition. Um, which was novel because whenever the Menil does something different, it's almost immediately a revelation because <laughs> because the Menil has their way of working. So when they change things up, it's really noticeable. Whereas with other museums who are maybe changing things up a little more, it's it's less noticeable. I, I'm not. This is no <laughs> insult at the Menil, but it's it's the fact that it's contributing to the fact that this exhibition is so memorable for me. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I I frankly wasn't that familiar with Lee Bontecu, and I feel like a lot of people are less familiar with her, maybe even with her drawings than her big, amazing sculptural works, yeah. which is she, which she's maybe perhaps best known for. Well, the big ones, like the big, crazy, pieced together uh, tarp Wire ones, tarp. those are so amazing. But also her little delicate kind of anthropomorphic things. Gosh, she's good. I wish I had seen this show. And I can imagine that the Manila would have been a terrific venue for it. Yeah, it was It was kind of the perfect museum show of a person that hadn't gotten a lot of play in this city. What year was that? That was in 2014. That makes a lot of sense, the timing of that too. And we'll get into timing in just a second. Am I uh, am I up? You're up. So my next one is uh, took place in 2015 at the Panhandle Plains Historic Museum in Canyon, Texas, which is up in the Panhandle. And I got in my car and drove the six hours to see it. It's called American Buffalo by George Catlin. He was a painter. Most of these paintings were done in the 1830s. Um, I went just on the strength of some JPEGs that I had seen, and I was so struck by them. Um, He spent a lot of time out on the American Plains in the 1830s and uh, befriended a lot of the the tribes, the tribes that were under siege uh, by white people. And he painted um, them, their villages, he did portraits of them, and he painted the buffalo. And um, I had not been up to Canyon, Texas. I had never been to the Panhandle Plains Museum, which you know um, is really something. And I walked into that museum and saw that show. This was organized by the Smithsonian, by the way. And the Smithsonian luckily owns most of the existing work by George Catlin. He was a self-taught artist. Um, Oh, my God. I was shaken to the core by this show. You really love the show and you wrote about it oh. in a really moving piece. Oh my God. I I just, I was just not prepared and to be an art critic and to walk into a show and be so unprepared is really unusual. But I was also, it wasn't just the Catlin show, which was amazing. And I do love his paintings. It was the entire experience of being in Canyon, Texas in the Panhandle at the Panhandle Plains Museum and seeing the rest of the museum, too, I spent hours there. I spent most of the day there. God, I was really feeling 
my ancestry and my roots in Texas, and I was feeling the blood on the soil in that region and the violence and the horror and the trauma of that region, as well as uh, the way that the museum was doing its best to kind of figure out a way to honor that without being too macabre. But the George Catlin show and the fact that a whole lot of the blood that was shed by of American buffalo as well as obviously American uh, Native American tribes was happening right there in the panhandle. And so the fact that this show came to the panhandle was also really something. I almost don't even know how to talk about it. I'm better at writing about this kind of thing than talking about it. But I mean, I was really shaken by this show. I still, even just talking about it is actually getting me back to that place. But wow, and it was not contemporary art and it didn't matter. It, this still sticks out to me. I still, I'm looking at these images right now and I'm just like, oof, yeah. So I saw another show of his work. There was a sh much smaller show of his work in Tulsa a few years later. Um, but yeah, I certainly gravitate to the imagery. So for my next one, uh, I'm actually cheating a little this time because I have two exhibitions, both at the Contemporary Austin, and I'm including them both because they were both fantastic, but they also uh, were back-to-back, -back, which to have two... Uh, for lack of a better word, to have two bangers right back to back uh, can sometimes be rare, but the contemporary did it. This was uh, in September of 2014 to January 2015, uh, an exhibition of works by Doho Sa, uh, put together by Heather Passanti, uh, the curator at the contemporary. Um, downstairs, this was before the contemporary was remodeled and everything, uh, so maybe the space was a little smaller than it is now, but downstairs there were some of his... Uh, objects in light boxes. So Dehosa is perhaps best known for recreating his apartment using, what is it, like a fabric? Mm -hmm. Or like a mesh fabric? Mm -hmm. um, kind of like a scrim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he makes these environments or these objects, these replications of areas, places where he has lived. Um, to scale. To scale. They're, they're exact. They're perfect. They're amazingly done. And you can, uh, if they're the environment, if they're the full room, you can walk into it um, and really feel a sense of the space. So... In line with that, he has uh, he made light boxes that were like individual objects, so like an oven, a radiator, um, and of course this mesh fabric being backlit in this light box. It's beautiful. It's almost kind of like Jeff Koons's vacuum cleaners, uh, but the object in the box was made by him and is made out of mesh and is it adds another layer to it maybe, or a different kind of layer. But then upstairs in the contemporary's main space um, was his, I, I believe it was the full uh, West 22nd Street apartment, yeah. which uh, one of the ways that he made these pieces and it was included in a film downstairs is he took rubbings of his um, apartments or whatever area he was making and then did some of did the the making of the fabric part of it later. Mm -hmm. So it was a little bit of an insight to process and then to be able to walk through the entire apartment installation, which was made of uh, different colors of this mesh was really beautiful. Uh, there was also a sculptural element out at Laguna Gloria, which is contemporary Austin's um, outdoor sculpture park space. They're really good about doing outdoor uh, sculpture elements of their exhibitions, uh, which we'll get to in just a second with the other part of this pick, uh, but that was a show that really stuck with me and I thought was really important for Texas audiences. 
And that was immediately followed two weeks later by a show of Tom Sachs. It was the Tom Sachs Boombox Retrospective, uh, 1999 to 2015. Um, and this was in 2015, and it was put together by Sean Ripple, mm-hmm. uh, an, uh, an Austin artist and curator. And what can you say about Tom Sachs? I mean, those objects are so wonderful. And, um, you know, and then he had a show at the Nasher. Uh, mm-hmm. What was it, two years later? Not mm-hmm. quite two years later. I mean, this guy, attention to detail is key. There's a real ad hoc kind of quality to the work, but they're so satisfying. They're very visually satisfying. You actually, you really want to put your hands on this stuff. His art's quintessentially American, and I say that kind of self-knowingly, but, you know, there's a <laughs> there's a kind of pick yourself up and do it and just make the darn thing tendency and to his work. And a geekdom to it, too. Mm-hmm. Like, let's figure out what philosophically goes behind the construction of these things and 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 pull that out as a, as a theme. So whether it's a boombox or a teacup for a tea ceremony, mm-hmm. there's, a trem- again, a tremendous attention to detail and a lot of uh, respect for the object. Um, it's geeky, and it's also fun and funny, and a little bit melancholy, mm-hmm. I think. But yeah, he's the ultimate geek artist. I certainly love his work. Yeah. So these these two shows were back to back at the contemporary uh, the contemporary Austin's downtown location, and I think they were truly both worthy of mm-hmm. being on this list. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next on my list, I I want to just hit a point that sometimes what an artist can do very, very well and what you almost expect the, the great artist to do is have an incredible sense of timing. And I don't have gallery shows much on my list, but this was Hyde Fontenot's show at Conduit Gallery, and he... Hyde Fontenot is the the longtime uh, Texas artist that ran Central Track, an artist residency in Dallas for a while, yep. uh, recently was in Tulsa at the Tulsa Artist Fellowship, mm-hmm. and is now back in San Antonio uh, as the Casa Chuck artist in residence. Yeah, we're very happy to have Hyde back here. He is an artist, and um, right before the election of uh, Donald Trump, he mounted an, a big immersive installation at Conduit Gallery in Dallas, and um, and it spanned the election itself. It was uh, called Cult Classic. It was uh, a very decadent, um, wonderfully sexual, celebratory show. Um, it was actually defiantly so. I wouldn't say that it was like some sort of kind, inclusive thing. It was almost militantly queer. And um, a lot of people saw it just before the election, then a lot of people saw it right after. But the timing was incredible because the feeling in the air right around that time was so tense with everybody. I mean, I don't care how you voted. Everyone was really on edge. And... The show itself felt almost like a private club, and you couldn't take photos. And I walked in during opening night. It was full. It was active. He had uh, bouncers and actors and uh, dancers, and the whole thing was kind of like a like a brothel and a strip club and a, a, a cinema. Um, everyone who participated was part of the celebration. It almost felt like an end of days, like, you know, fiddling on the Titanic kind of moment. It was a really strange thing. And 
um, again, timing has a lot to do with just how incredibly successful this show was. I think for so many people who saw it, it was very moving. Um, it was very punk rock, too. Again, there was something, it wasn't nihilistic, but it was not, it was noticing what was changing about the U.S. and responding to it uh, very much in the moment and super memorable because of that. The individual objects were cool. Um, walking through it was great. It was almost like a stage set where you could walk behind uh, the sets into the raw spaces where raw things were happening. I loved how dirty it was. I think it's hard to work um, some sex into some art. I, d I think that's a trick, and when it's done well, it's, um, it's really something. But, man, this is a great gallery show. I remembered it. I wrote about it. Um, uh, we were all feeling a lot of things right around that time. In fact, I wrote about it just a few days after the election. So we were all super, super raw. And in Dallas, that's true, too. And it, we just all felt it in the air. Something about this particular show hitting at that particular time was um, quite, quite the moment. I just realized I might be a little bit out of order, but that doesn't matter because I love my next pick so much. <laughs> and it is because... So a lot of times I, I am a big proponent that really slight touches to things can make the biggest difference in terms of art. It's the idea of the ready-made or the slightly, like the altered ready-made, right? Um, or it's the idea that a certain space can really be transformed by a really simple gesture. And this is, uh, my next pick is Zoe Leonard's 100 North Neville Street, uh, which was at the Chinati Foundation's ice plant building in Marfa. Uh, I believe it opened in late 2013. I don't quite remember when it closed. I know it was extended, I believe, for a couple different times, possibly. Mm -hmm. um, Zoe Leonard has done this with different spaces. I believe she did one for the Whitney Biennial. Uh, but the whole idea is it was a large lens in the wall of the building that turned the building or the entire interior of the building into a camera obscura. Mm -hmm. And I saw this. Uh, I saw this the very first time I went to Marfa, and I continuously revisited this installation over and over, and would just sit in it uh, and watch the outside of Marfa. But of course, it's the outside of Marfa reflected upside down and mirrored on the inside of this big, beautiful ice plant building. Mm -hmm. Of course, part of what made this uh, this piece so amazing is the ice plant building, which is this raw industrial space, mm -hmm. but also just if you've ever been to West Texas or if you've ever read anything about West Texas, I know I wrote about this recently, but the whole kind of key to it is the landscape and the space. And that's that's really what makes it special. So having this landscape reflected um, on the inside of a, of a building like this was really interesting because it captured it in a different way that it would have captured a city or it would have captured a busier landscape. Mm -hmm. It's also kind of a lazy landscape because there's not a lot of activity. There's occasionally a car that drives by. If you were in the installation when a train went by, it was kind of the optimal time because then there would just be a train upside down running across the the wall of this building in a really beautiful and poetic and simple way. You know, which actually I believe Camp or Buck told me that I think on average like 19 trains go through a day. You don't think that when you're a Marfa. You're like, it's maybe four or five times, but it's 19 times. So there's a good chance that if you were in that installation that you would see it with the train. I love the Marfa train. That's why I bring this up. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and it was it was a really I feel like it was a really central element of this camera obscura because this was actually the first time I had ever been to Marfa that I saw this. So, you know, it was all it's all new and exciting. Mm-hmm. But I remember seeing a train go by and being like, I need to see that in the camera of you know, it was it felt it started to feel like a crucial part of it, even if you didn't really have any familiarity with Marfa That's or funny. with Zoe Leonard's work or just with the piece itself. Yeah. Um this is, again, this is just another piece that I continuously think about in this that really made an impact on me and that there's really no accurate way to describe how amazingly fascinating it was because you just had to sit in there and watch it happening. Yeah. And it seems like it would be really boring and it just wasn't. Yeah, yeah. The good slow art. Mm-hmm. Uh, my next pick uh, was at the Nasher in 2017. It was Richard Serra's Prince. <clears throat> Again, me not expecting a whole lot one way or the other. I'm a big fan of Richard Serra and his big sculptures. Um, but this, wow. And it's a print show at Nasher Sculpture Center. And you're like, what's the, what's the print show doing there? Well, these prints are so heavy and have so much presence that they are sculptural. I love printmaking, and I still am not quite sure how he made these. Because, I mean, to to get, like, a plate of copper eaten up by acid enough that it can leave an impostoed impression, it it doesn't make sense in my mind. Yeah, these look like they're so heavy that if they aren't, like, bolted to the wall with, like, you know the concrete sort of screws that they would just fall off. I mean, much like his actual sculpture, but... It almost looks like molded plastic. Or it looks like his oil stick pieces, but maybe a little cleaner. These are basically portraits in a sense of his Corten steel sculptures or their studies or their, but they're huge and they're, and the way that it was installed in the space and they had the, the, the ceiling blacked out, um, Almost felt sort of immersive, I want to say that, um, even though I it didn't, it wasn't, I don't think, meant to be. Well, this was one of the first shows that I saw in the Nasher also that made me realize that the space was good for anything they wanted it to be good for. Yeah. They transformed this gallery space, which they did. Uh, if you've ever been to the Nasher Sculpture Center, it has a lot of windows and a lot of light uh, because it, it, it's a sculpture center. It's kind of made to show things in the round. But of course, these prints, while they were sculptural, they were 2D, so they had to be hung on walls. And this show did that successfully and transformed that space in a way that I didn't know that it was able to. Yeah, and the timing in the sense of this was kind of good too, although our serendipitous in that, you know, the uh, museum tower next door to Nasher throws uh, really harsh light into the Nasher through its beautiful ocular roof system. So when they have to black out the ceiling, I mean, there are times when it's like, ah, this is a bummer. But in this particular show, it was necessary. So it all felt of a piece. But these prints are the kinds of things that are, they almost, all of them are so strong. And he did them at Gemini. um, Gemini Gel? Yeah, in in Los Angeles. And I think it was after I wrote the review of this show, I want to say Seth Alverson, the painter, who maybe was moving out there around that time, he had some sort of connection to Gemini, and he sent me, a, and he probably put it on his Instagram, a, a short video of the Sarah, uh, the black ink that's used in these and how much of it there is. It was in this big churning kind of... Um, like a mixer? Yeah, it was like in a giant mixer, and it was a tremendous amount of ink, and it made a lot more sense after I saw that. The weight of these things is, has to do with how much ink is used, but... 
Um, it was almost like music. I mean, I think I described it as being like a bass line, like a really good bass line on really good speakers. Um, I spent a lot of time in that show, and I still think about it. And I wish that I, I mean, if it were up to me, I would have a lot of these prints, and they would be in my house, and I would sleep in a room surrounded by them. So there's something also very reassuring about the gravity of what Sarah does. I mean, it's like dad, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, I just revealed a lot there. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that was a real memorable show for me. So congratulations to the National for doing that one. Staying in the Metroplex, my next pick is Takashi Murakami, The Octopus Eats Its Own Legs. So this was organized by uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago mm-hmm. um, and brought to the Fort Worth Modern in 2018. Mm-hmm. This show... so. Christina, we had bef- uh, we had in Los Angeles seen some of Murakami's paintings together at the Broad and a few other places, um, and I know I had seen some of his sculptures, very very kind of piecemeal. Seeing a full exhibition of Murakami's work blew my mind. <laughs> Isn't that that's the optimal way to see his work? Yes, and I mean, I, no matter how you feel about how I don't know gimmicky he is, how his work is also produced like tchotchkes and toys and commercialization of it. I mean, all of that, you know, he has people making his paintings for him. There was an, uh, there was a video in the exhibition that very clearly showed his little army of studio assistants. But I mean, all of these works were fantastic and they're so perfectly done. And you can't tell how they're made because they're layers of paint and screen printing. And these, they're also the, the, largest paintings that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And they're perfect. Yes, they are. You just there's there's no good way and I, maybe I'm just a, a fool for technique, but I mean, damn. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was a hell of a show. That was really something. And you're exactly right. No matter how you feel about the chachiization of Murakami, this was an undeniable show. I mean, there was a lot of power in that show. A lot of personality. Uh, definitely a very specific point of view about basically Japanese culture and personality. I mean, it was really something. And the characters that he makes in his work, he actually, one of the things that I think we're maybe picking this and not like the cause show, right, (laughs) would be because the characters that Murakami makes in his pieces, he puts them into really interesting and complex and dynamic situations Mm. that lend itself much more. it, It kind of opens it up to being more than uh, inside his own mind and his own world. Well, his psychology bit. is super, super complex, and it comes out in the work and cause, I mean, I don't know, we've been, several people have told us that we need to do a worst of. <laughs> so to me, there's a huge, the 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 massive black and white difference between Murakami's uh, complex psychology versus cause, very elementary one is, that's uh it's another, it's another subject for another day. Anyway, the, the Murakami show this year, or last year rather, in 2018, was spectacular. Yeah, it was. It was totally spectacular. My, the last on my like formal list, um, it was also the most recent one, which took place in basically the summer of 2018, and it was the fifth Transborder Biennial. Um, it is shared by the El Paso Museum of Art and the Museo de Arte de Ciudad Juarez. Um, and you can walk across the pedestrian bridge between uh, El Paso and Juarez and see both shows in both museums. I did that with Rainey Knudsen that summer. 
um, it was the fifth one, and it is um, paintings and sculptures and videos and everything else. There were 32 artists, uh, and they all live along the U.S.-Mexico border on either the Mexico side or the U.S. side. I Again, this is a timing thing. Something about the timing of this, uh, given that it was, you know, a year or so after, I guess, Trump actually walked into the Oval Office and started his presidency, and um, all of the border issues that have been um, so upfront and central in Texas, this just felt like a really important show. It was there was very good work in it. Um, being able to see both sides of the show on both sides of the border in the same day was really meaningful as well. Knowing how hard the museum in Juarez has to work to get this show put together and on a true shoestring budget without a big art crowd on uh, that side of the border was is another thing and we talked with the staff and curators about that but um, that was an important trip to me and that was an important show to me I know I think as far as I know they're going to keep doing it I think that's wonderful and um, it just as I guess as a as an art lover and art critic, the, the idea that a show can keep you in touch with individual pieces of humanity seems really important to me. And and learning these artists' names and looking at their work and looking at them, and knowing that they're making the work in this particular political moment is really bracing to me. Um, so anyway, it's this is just something I want to see continue, and I think it'll continue and get better and better. But this was that. It's not that any one individual work even stuck out to me. There were a few things that did, but it was just the whole gesture. The Texas-Mexico exchange and that actually having to traverse seems like that's what really stuck out to you. And that's something that people and shows and other things that happened in this decade uh, have done and I feel like that's kind of the future of what we'll see more of in the 2020s. No, you're right. I mean, if we're we're always asking what is the future of art, um this is one of the futures of art and it feels important. So I do have one more. Mm-hmm. And We've covered this in multiple different ways. It was on my best of 2019 list. Um, we've written about it. Rainy Knutson wrote about it when she first saw it at the Broad. The Guardian recently named it the best artwork of the 21st century. Maybe this is n- because it's new to me and I just saw it this year, but I can't get it out of my mind. It's Ragnar Jartensen's The Visitors, which is... There's no good way to describe it, really. It's an hour-long video piece. Multi-channel. Multi-channel. Basically, the majority of it, at least, is static cameras filming these musicians playing this hour-long song in a beautiful kind of crumbling mansion in in upstate New York. It sounds a little trite. But everyone who's seen it is absolutely smitten. Yes. It it showed... uh, It showed at the Museum of Fine Arts uh, earlier this year, and it actually opened and is still on view right now at the Dallas Museum of Art. It's on view through March of 2020. Which is good because the day I went to see it at the DMA, it was closed due to difficulties or technical difficulties, and I still haven't seen this video. Nine channel video, what can you do? (laughs) Oh my God. So um, this this truly... I feel like I I can't emphasize this enough. I've been telling this to people who I've talked to about this video. If you haven't seen it and you have a day where you can drive to Dallas, even if you have to drive to Dallas and come back the same day, 
visit this artwork. Um, in Dallas, it actually is shown with uh, another project that Ragnar did, some a postcard project where he sent postcards to um, Marguerite Hoffman, one of the museum's patrons, over, I believe it's like at the period of a year. Um, it's funny, he's had a presence in Texas because he had um, all of the, he had the stuff at uh, the Contemporary in Austin as well. Yeah, he had a piece called the SS Hangover. This is an Icelandic artist, by the way. So he's known for performance art. He's known for stuff that kind of breaks these boundaries, like between performance and video. Also, he's known for durational things. Um Give this video two hours of your time. And I know that's a really significant thing to say. But if you walk in, you might kind of think that it's okay. You have to sit with it for a second. It is so worth it. It's one of the best artworks I saw this year, if not this decade. Wow. I love it. I will see it. I'm going to see it before it closes at the DMA. Um, there are a lot of, I, I mean, I don't even want to call them honorable mentions. This was a hard list to come up with. These were other, other shows that really stuck out to us. Um, I'll just run through a run few. Run through your list. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Shipper at Rice, at the Rice Gallery, which, you know, rest in peace, that was an incredible space. One of the, maybe one of the more notable things of the last decade in Texas is the closing of that gallery, which was completely unique and incredibly effective. Kim Davenport ran the shit out of it. It was amazing. But that Shipper show, which was called Cubicle, he um, did his Jonathan Shipper thing, which is he attaches... Um, untold number of objects to these semi-invisible wires and over the course of the show uh, the wires pull into a motor that's behind a wall and everything gets kind of crammed together and it takes days weeks months Uh, I first saw his show at Crystal Bridges in Arkansas but this show was just an entire office um, like gray cubicle office with all of its details intact and that thing got destroyed over the course of um, its show and at Rice because it was just it's like a big aquarium box it was just incredibly uh, it was exactly the right spot for that um, I, w- I didn't mean to go into so much uh, description. Urban Theater, the 80s show that Michael Opping put together at the Fort Worth Modern was a, a favorite of mine. I think some people were down on it because it's like, ugh, art of the 80s. But, you know, it was the first 80s show that I saw of, around that time. It was in 2014. It was great. Um, we both really like Gabe Martinez's show at the Blaffer. That yeah, was a hell Gabriel of a show. Martinez at the Blaffer. He's a Houston artist and he's terrific. And that was a really, really good show. Um, I really loved um, the Thomas Hart Benton show at the Amon Carter. Um, Chuck Ramirez, there was a big retrospective of his basically throughout the city of San Antonio, but the McNay did one, and that was a really good sense of discovery for me. I knew Chuck Ramirez's work, but I didn't know all of it, and I had never seen all that work together, and that was very moving. Uh, Juan Mora is a printmaker in San Antonio. He did a show at the McNay downstairs that was of his prints that were great. Um, the current show that just ended at the Contemporary uh, yesterday, if you're listening to this on Sunday, to have that many John Curran paintings in one spot in Texas is incredible. Um, I saw it twice. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are some that I would mention as like things that I still think about. When I was doing research for this, I, I'm just going to run through. I'm not even really going to go into as much detail as you did because quite a few of these we actually wrote about. And as for third time's the charm, uh, mm-hmm. we'll link all of this in the post on Glass Tire. But um, 
a show at the Harry Ransom Center of Landscapes by Frank Ray. Oh, God, he's so great. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of little pastel pieces, but also some of his really significant, I think it was the driving of the cattle or the driving of the herd. Yeah, early Texas painter. Mm -hmm. He's great. And also you can catch a lot of his work in different places, but the uh, Panhandle Plains up in uh, Canyon has a number of his works on show pretty much all the time. Yeah. So that was that was fantastic. And the Harry Ransom Center in general does great shows yeah, and has absolutely. an amazing collection. Um, the War Photography Images of Armed Conflict and its Aftermath exhibition at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Uh, this was a huge exhibition featuring images of war. Um, and the photographers that kind of went on these trips and documented all of this um, – Again, no words. It has one of the, perhaps the largest catalogs that I've ever seen for a show. The book is oversized. It's thick. It's great. Uh, But that was a landmark show, of course, and it's uh, made possible by the fact that the MFAH has an amazing collection of photos that was really built up by Ann Tucker, the longtime curator there. Right. And can I just interject really quickly? Another show that we both talked about or and that was on my shortlist was the Japanese photography show, which was called at the MFAH, which was called For a New World to Come, Experiments in Japanese Art and Photography. That was a stunning show. Yeah. Go ahead. Also, a show of works by Marilyn Minter called Pretty Dirty. It was at the Contemporary Arts Museum, Houston. Mm. I feel like this was another really important exhibition to bring to Texas to kind of make some of the New York-Texas connections. Mm. Um, And the works themselves are beautiful and so well done. Mm. Uh, Another Cam show, Cam had a really good decade, um, that also Valerie Cassell-Oliver put together, Trenton Doyle Hancock's Skin and Bones, 20 Years of Drawings. Um, this show, again, it traveled, it was fantastic, and it really showed a, a, a good breadth of Trenton's work over the past 20 years, mm-hmm. which is amazing. And it was great to have a show of works by, you know, this Houston-based artist at one of Houston's big institutions. Well, and on that note, the Susie Rosemarin show that was there um, a couple of years ago, seeing her earliest paintings to me was a real revelation, and she's a Houston-based painter Cam has been good about showing Houston artists. Mm-hmm. That was, I, I think, an effort that they really made. And they also had shows called Outside the Lines, which included Houston artists with other artists. Mm-hmm. Cam did a really good job of that. Mm-hmm. So also on my list uh, at the DMA, at the Dallas Museum of Art, was a show called Jackson Pollock Blind Spots. This was an exhibition focusing on Jackson Pollock's black paintings. Yeah, that was Gavin De La Hunty put that together. That was quite the marquee show. Very, very good show. I feel like kind of with how with how much fun is made of Jackson Pollock and pop culture and how he kind of has this reputation of being, you know, art that's... The drippy paintings. The drippy paintings, art that's easy to do, whatever you want to say about him. This show, I feel like really kind of recontextualized him in a really smart way. It was very smart. Um, in this group of paintings, you know, it it went a little bit around the the possible uh, complication of just being the drippy stuff, and it showed smart painting. Yeah, and it was very well installed. It was beautifully installed as well. Um, and he did. He contextualized the heck out of that work. The final final on my list is uh, a show of works by Kahinta Wiley. Oh, Kahinta yeah. Kahinta Wiley, A New Republic at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Right. That wasn't too long ago. It really wasn't. And these pieces, I expected them to be fine. And, you know, I had seen his work very piecemeal. But this was another one kind of like the the Modern's Murakami show where you see a 
uh, exhibition of these works together and they just strike you in a way. And his paintings are so well done and there's there's very much a reason that he has come to so much prominence recently. Mm -hmm. Um, This show told me why that was. Yeah, yeah, me too, actually. Um, All right, so that's just, man, you know. Tip of the iceberg. It really is tip of the iceberg, and we've named a lot of shows. Um, But it's been a good decade in Texas art, and we've seen a lot of changes. There's a lot more of it. There's a lot more of everything. There's more artists, more institutions, more spaces, more galleries. I realize things are cyclical. There are good years and bad years in any given city, but generally speaking, I, I wanna say that the whole, almost the kind of international trend of visual art being a thing that people really pay attention to, no matter who they are or what their background is, you know, has definitely infiltrated Texas, and we've got um, a lot of growth here and a lot of money here, and it has allowed us to have a lot of really great shows, shows that are brought in from the outside as well as shows that are um, staged from here and from the inside. And we have so many good artists doing so much great work. It's been a pleasure. I mean, we're lucky. We have a good, we have good jobs. <laughs> we really do. Yeah. And thank you to all of you who have... Uh, given us things to look at over the past decade. Oh, yes. Thank you so so much. It's incredibly gratifying. And we're excited to look at more in 2020. In the 2020s. Let's do another decade. And with that, uh, I hope that you are having a good holiday season. We hope that you're having a good holiday season and that this next week will be reasonably fun and relaxing for you and your loved ones and your friends and your family. And... Uh, If you get a chance, go see some art. Go see some art.